so impressed with the Christ-centeredness of the worship there, and I think that it serves two purposes. It gives glory to Jesus that's due to him, but then it also points our, our young people to uh, the only thing that will ever get them through this life, and that will only get them through to eternal life, which is Jesus Christ alone. Take the drugs out of schools, uh, take the crime out of schools, uh, you know, get them off the internet where there's all kinds of wickedness and pornography, and they could still be going to hell. What they need more than anything is Jesus Christ, and it's beautiful. So thank you, worship, uh, youth band, fantastic stuff. I'm Matthew Nicosia, the children's ministry director here at Valley Bible Church, and it's my pleasure to, to be here and, and to uh, be entrusted with the most precious people in all the world, which are your children. I get to worship with short people every Sunday, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to do that. They're precious in the sight of Christ. Uh, they're precious in your sight, moms and dads, I know. And they're the precious in the sight of this church. We love having your kids here. And I'm so thankful that I get to share the word with you this morning. Got a text here that's actually quite daunting in some respects. And I'm not going to pretend that I could treat it as well as any other pastor or preacher. But what I hope we could do this morning is examine the scriptures and see what God is saying or what he has said through the Apostle James to the churches that were dispersed, uh, specifically the Jewish Christians that were dispersed. So we'll, we'll be in the book of James, so if you would please turn to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. It's on page 855 in the Pew Bibles that are provided to you. Um, and I'll give you a disclaimer right here and right now. I've, I've come down with a cold the last couple of days, and so <clears throat> first service I was doing okay, but I think the cold medication's wearing off a little bit, so I may have to pause just to regain my voice a few times, so I, I just want to share that with you, that I apologize for that up front, and I'll do the best I can to uh, <laughs> speak clearly. But with that in mind, considering our weaknesses, both in mind and in spirit uh, and in body, uh, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer to ask for His strength and His uh, illumination. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. It's no small task to, uh, of an undertaking to, to search the scriptures and seek a meaning, to seek an understanding. Uh, Father, there is no meaning that dwells within ourselves. There is no meaning that stands apart from the written word of God, the intention that you put down in the pages of scripture and the men that you used, that you carried along by the Holy Spirit so that every word was breathed out by God. And so, Father, to find that meaning, we, we know it's no small task, but at the same time, we know that you promised that you'd lead us to the truth. And so, Father, we ask, would you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law, and that, as Paul said, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Teach us. Move us. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 will be our text this morning. However, in light of James 2, 14 to 26, I want us to look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And I believe there should be a slide behind me that will show Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8 for you, so that if you want to remain in James chapter 2, you can stay there, and we can read together Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. We've got two different authors. We've got the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, who's writing to the, uh, the, obviously the church in Rome. He had never met them. He said that he wanted to go see them, but he's addressing them because he wants them to understand this salvation through Christ alone. And so he's writing to them, 
so that they may have an understanding of the salvation. And he gives, he gives the meaning of the book of Romans in, in chapter 1, verse 16. He uh, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he makes his purpose very clear. The gospel of righteousness through Christ alone. So we read Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. It says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Referring to the father, the patriarch of our faith. Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a uh, gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but trust in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the word of the Lord. Paul's writing saying we're justified. We are declared right before God on the basis of grace, God's unmerited favor, grace alone, through faith alone, meaning trust, belief in Christ, and who He is and what He's done, and by Christ's work alone, credited to our account, apart from any works that we've done. It's very clear. And if you've been in Valley Bible Church very long, you know that justification, this doctrine of justification, is no stranger to us. In fact, our beloved pastor Phil, Dr. Phil Howard, not the Dr. Phil, but our Dr. Phil, Dr. Phil Howard loves the book of Romans, loves to preach the book of Romans, goes to Romans anytime he can, because Romans is very clear. It states how a sinner can be justified before a righteous God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our, our ministries are based upon the truth, the doctrine that God justifies or declares righteous. He declares sinners by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Our children's ministry, I mentioned to you, I'm the children's ministry director. Our ministry would fall to the ground if I could not tell children that they could have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It would just be a fun little social club. That's not what it is. It's a gospel ministry. But we come to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Follow along as I read aloud James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works." You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. 
You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. This is the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, the offspring of the the relationship, the marriage of, of Mary and Joseph. There's a proof for you right there of Mary had children after Christ. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he's an apostle. He was named an apostle. He wasn't a part of the original 12. Please don't get confused with James, the brother of John's and sons of Zebedee. It's a different James, the half-brother of Jesus. But we see from the book of Acts, he gets elevated in status and authority in the church, and he eventually becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. This is no guy with, you know, small potatoes. This guy knows what he's talking about. This guy has a lot of authority in the church. And no doubt he had encountered Paul, and we see that in Acts. He encountered Paul. We see the Jerusalem Council where they talk about, how is a Gentile going to come to faith? Here we Jews know that we've got all of the oracles of God. We've got all the promises of God. We're receiving our Messiah. But what about these Gentiles? Can they be brought into the covenant relationship with God? And they all agree, absolutely, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what's agreed upon, apart from any works of the law. But James here, this half-brother of Jesus, this apostle, this head of the church in Jerusalem writes, to the 12 tribes dispersed all over. They were dispersed because of persecution. They were spread all out. So he's writing to Jewish Christians, and he says something very, very interesting. Now, I I don't know about you, but I've read these verses, and there's been many times I've thought, How in the world do we reconcile the doctrine of justification by faith alone with Paul and this justification by works that James seems to be propagating? In fact, look at the stark difference here, if you would, uh, Romans 4, 5 compared with James 2.24. You could also read Romans 3.28. I mean, Paul is so clear and so succinct in what he describes as justification. I'll read them for you. I know that's not fully up there. But Romans 4.5 says, And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Got that in your minds? James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Two problems here, at least two problems, if James and Paul are contradicting each other. So there are some theologians and commentators that would like to say this. Here's what's happening, okay? We've got two different writers in two different contexts, and they're writing and they're really facing off against each other. In this ring, in this side of the ring, in this corner of the ring, we have James. He's got his boxing gloves on, ready to go. Justification by works. And over on this side, in this corner of the ring, we have the Apostle Paul. He's got his boxing gloves on, and he declares that one is justified by faith alone. And you can almost hear it now. Ding, ding. Go at it, man. Who's right? Is it Paul saying a justification by faith alone, or is it James saying a justification by works and not by faith alone, as James 2.24 says? Indeed, this is no small battle. If it's true that we're justified by works and faith and we're not justified by faith alone, then we probably have so much in common with our friends in the Roman Catholic Church. Indeed, a whole schism, a whole 
separation has taken place between Protestants and Catholics over this very subject. How is one made right before God? Now, I will not slander our friends in the Catholic Church. Some of us have been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that in the time that have said that Catholics teach that one is justified by works. That's slanderous. It's not what they teach. They teach that one is justified by grace, but not by grace through faith alone. They're justified by grace plus works. And they'd, pl- they'd point to a passage like this and says, even the Apostle James says, one is justified by works. And so we've got a real threat here to the very core of who we are as Valley Bible Church. We have a a threat to the very core of who we are as the church globally. Again, like I said, our ministries are founded upon the fact, the truth of what Paul says is that we are justified, declared right before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So are Paul and James, are they contradicting each other? If Paul and James contradict each other, we have at least two problems, probably many more than that, but doctrinally I see two problems. First is that the Protestant evangelical doctrine of justification by faith alone is false. If James is really saying what it almost seems like he's saying, and that Paul and and James are really at odds against each other, the very doctrine that we hold so dear to our hearts is false. It's a big problem. Second problem I see that, that rises from this is that the Protestant evangelical doctrine of the inerrancy of the Scripture is also false. How in the world can you have two opposing views both be correct? Philosophically, it's not possible. If they contradict each other, either they're both wrong or only one of them is right. The only option that is not available is that they are both right. If Paul and James are contradicting each other. So this creates a huge problem. We don't believe that it was just mere men who wrote the scriptures. James was an instrument used by God to write this epistle. Paul was the instrument God used to write Romans and many other epistles. But we also believe that it was the Holy Spirit, God himself, who carried along these apostles to pen the original manuscripts of the Holy Scriptures. And what we believe, what we're called Valley Bible Church. The implication of being called Valley Bible Church and all other ministries that preach the Word of God as the inerrant Word of God is that it is that. It is inerrant. It is without error. It stands against us. If there is something that we believe is wrong, it's the problem with us, not a problem with the Word of God. If Paul and James contradict each other, this at least is the second major problem that we have. We have a challenge to the inerrancy of the scriptures. And you may be thinking to yourself, Matthew, what in the world are you doing getting yourself into this bind this morning? I've asked myself the same thing several times this week. (laughs) I think if we examine the scriptures, which we'll do this morning, I think we will find that what seem like threats are actually beautiful demonstrations of authentic, transforming, saving, justifying faith in Jesus Christ. Now, before we start comparing these two doctrines here, these two books, James and and Paul, we have to make sure that we're comparing two things that are alike. You know the saying, you're trying to compare apples with oranges. I think when we look at this here and we define the terms, we'll understand that if we try and compare James and Paul as two equal apples, if you want to put it that way, that they can't go together. 
But if we understand that we're talking about an apple over here and an orange over here, I think we will find that God's word is as true as it's ever been. There's several things we need to define as we look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. One word is faith alone. Faith alone. Paul says we're justified or declared right before God by faith alone. James also uses that same term. He says faith alone as well. What is James talking about? Is that faith alone the same kind of faith alone that Paul's talking about? Secondly, we need to define for ourselves as we examine this again, what does James mean by works? By works. When he says works, is he saying the same kind of thing that Paul is saying when he describes works in Romans and other epistles? Thirdly, we need to understand what does James mean by the term justified? When he says justified, is he using it in the same forensic relationship, meaning judge, jury, uh, judge, and, and culprit, criminal, and before a judge, forensic. That's what I mean in a, in a courtroom. That's the way Paul uses it. How can one be declared right when he's a criminal before God? You can't bring any works to the table. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Is that the same way that James is using the term justified in that forensic, definite terminology? Well, let's take a look. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Now, I always appreciate being able to figure out what is he talking about? What's the theme? What are you getting at, James? And I do that with our kids when we're talking uh, across the way. Uh, teaching them lessons, and we, all of our teachers, you know, we really try and strive to make sure that when the kids walk out of the room, they get the big idea. So what's the big idea? And oftentimes we can get that big idea by first understanding what is the term, what are the, what, what, what's the main emphasis here? And one of those main emphasis is often a phrase that's repeated over and over again. So with your Bibles open, looking at James 2, 14 to 26, I'd like for us to see three times James describes faith without works. James 2.17 says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Chapter 2, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And in verse 26, to close up this section, he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Repeated language, dead, useless. If you get nothing out of the sermon this morning, please understand this. James is emphasizing to all of us, to the church that he's writing to, and to us here today, faith without works is dead. Dead. Not sick, not on life support, dead, worthless, useless. So we see here first a moral illustration of this dead and useless faith in uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. He starts out by saying, what good is it, brothers, if someone says, what good? Really, it's this general idea. Is it any good at all? Is it any benefit to any of us? Does it profit us anything at all if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Does it provide any benefit? He answers the question, but the way he's phrasing the question is he's already saying that it's a negative. It's a not. But he tells us specifically, is it of any good? He rephrases that and he says, can that faith save him? The good that he has in mind is saying this, you cannot get any saving benefit at all. No saving profit to you at all if you have faith without works. It does you absolutely 
no good. And what's interesting there is when he rephrases it, he says, can that faith save him? All of a sudden, he's taken it, and he's taken that faith, and he said, I'm not talking about just faith in general. I'm talking about that faith. That faith. What's that faith that he's talking about? He just described. If someone says that he has faith, but does not have works. That's the faith alone that James is talking about in this text. He's not talking about a genuine, authentic, saving faith. He's talking about the claim of someone to say, I have faith in God, but it's void of works. It's a mere claim to faith. It's absent of works. And we'll see very soon that it's just a dead orthodoxy or or doctrinal correctness. That's all it is. It's as far as it goes. It's a mere claim. It's just someone saying, oh, I have faith. If it only goes that far, it is a dead faith. Can that faith save him? Then Ivy renders it, can such faith, this kind of false, phony faith that's a masquerade, This is the kind of faith that's just merely a claim, merely words. It's a confession only. It's void of any transformation. It's void of any power. It's not the result of the regenerating new birth of the Holy Spirit. It has no works that characterize it. Now, please understand, James is not advocating that we add works to our faith. What he's saying is that the only faith that saves is the authentic nature of faith that will result in works. So it's not two different substances. It's one substance. It's faith, but it's a nature. It's a kind of faith that will result in works. That's the true saving faith. But right now he's saying, can such faith save him? The phony, facade kind of faith that's just a mere confession without any works, without any transformation. Well, he goes on to give us the moral illustration in verses 15 to 16. Now, it's interesting. Maybe if you want to read James later, you'll see that throughout James, James has a constant theme also of talking about the poor that are in need. And here he uses it again. Verses 15 to 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? He's using a a Jewish kind of custom that says, go in peace, almost like may God be with you. I mean, that sounds nice, right? But really, it's an address of kind of saying goodbye. It's the end of the conversation. And so what James is saying is that you may come and you say, oh, you have good intentions. Oh, may God bless you. Go in peace. Be warmed. Be filled. Oh, I pray. I hope that you get, you know, clothes on your body. And I hope you get your food filled with, uh, your stomach filled with food. What good is that to the person that's in need? It's almost like a slap in the face to them because they can see the wallet hanging out of your back pocket with all that cash falling out. It's no good to them. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. How about you do it, buddy? I'm hungry. I'm naked. What good is that? The answer is a resounding, it isn't. It's worthless. No benefit, no profit. And so James makes the comparison here. What good is it? Verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, faith without works is dead. It's mere empty words. It has no benefit. It has no profit. 
it's void of saving benefit to you. So first we see this moral, this moral illustration. It's, it's really a silly idea here. You've got all these resources and you have a friend in need and you do nothing for them. Let me tell you, your faith without works, it's naked, it's hungry, it can do you no benefit. Faith without works is dead. We see this moral illustration, but then next we move down to verses 18 to 20 and we see an orthodox objection. We have somebody, man, they got all their ducks in a line. They got all their systematic theology all lined up. They can define every term. They got it all nailed down. What does James say? Verses 18 to 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Now, there's a lot of comment on how exactly this relationship is working out. Who's that someone he's talking about? The idea here is you have two opposing views. You have someone who is saying, look at me. I'm saved because I've got faith. I don't need works to show you. I've got orthodox faith. But James says that's impossible. You show me your faith apart from works, verse 18, and I will show you my faith by my works. There is no way, there's no way you could separate faith from works. They're inseparable. Inseparable. So if you come here and you say, I've got faith, I got all the right answers, but your life is void of works. James is saying, you try and show me that. It's dead. It's useless. You think you could show me that you've got faith by a mere confession, by merely saying the words? He says, you try and show me that apart from works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. The true evidence. Verse 19. Ooh, man, this has been convicting all week. You believe that God is one you do well. You believe that God is one, you do well. That God is one. Remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience here. God is one. If, if you know your scriptures, that might bring back some memories. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema passage, the great unifying confession of the people of Israel that helped them to stand out from the pagan polytheistic uh, cultures that they lived in, the peoples that worshiped many gods and made idols for themselves. But the one thing, one of the greatest things, in fact, the number one thing that made the Jewish people, Israel, stand out is that they were believed in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The great, great confession of the people of Israel. What is James' response to that? That's your confession. You do well. You do well. There's some commentators that, that believe when he says you do well, and I happen to agree with him. It's almost as if saying, oh, you believe that God is one? Congratulations. There's this, almost a sense of sarcasm there. Give the man a prize. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. If your faith only goes as far as a doctrinally correct confession of faith and it is void of works, you belong to the faith club of demons. Even demons believe. And it goes on to say, even the demons believe and they shudder. They actually have a trembling, fearful experience, an emotional response to knowing, I know who this God is, and I rejected him, and every time I think about him, I know that someday I'm going to get it big time. You got to understand the most orthodox 
beings in all the universe are Satan and the angels, apart from the holy angels and those that have been transfigured into heaven. But Satan is orthodox. He's the most beautiful angel that's, that's ever been created. And he was in God's throne room and he sinned there. He's orthodox. The demons believe orthodox, good, biblical doctrine and they shudder from fear. What we see here is an intellectual kind of faith that believes alone, but it does not save because it is void of good works. What we also see here is a faith of emotional experience, even a trembling fear of God. But if it stops there, it's worthless. It's dead. Some of you here today may be banking on going to heaven thinking that you're justified because you've got a doctrinally correct statement of faith. Some of you may think that you, you're right with God and that you're going to heaven because you had a very, maybe even intense, emotional experience on the day that you were so-called converted. If it ends there, you have a demonic faith. Now, I'm not saying that it's the result of demon possession. What James is saying is that you hold in common the kind of faith that even demons have. They believe and they shudder. Are you banking on your orthodox beliefs as your proof of authentic faith? Do you refer to a deep emotional experience in your past as evidence that you're saved? If your intellect and emotions are void of good works, you might as well just be a demon. It's very sobering. Very sobering. Again, the emphasis is faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Let me define for you again what, what James means by works. We've already looked at faith. It's a mere claim to faith. It's absent of works. It's dead orthodoxy, and it may even be an intense mo emotional experience, but if it ends there, it is dead. It does not save. What about works? So works of the person the way James defines it, it's the works of the person who has authentic faith in Christ. It's love from a changed heart. Look at verse 20. It says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You can't see it there, but in, in the original language, it's amazing. It, it's almost like a play on words. Don't you see that? Because work and useless actually sound the same. So what he's saying is there, don't you see that your work is useless? Actually, it means that your work doesn't work. It doesn't work for you. If you have faith apart from works, that work, that the faith doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. It will not work for you. It provides you no benefit. It is useless. Faith without works doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's useless. It's useless. So again, faith, according to James, is not merely a claim to faith. It's absent of works. It's dead orthodoxy. But we also see that if you don't have the works, your faith is dead. And those kinds of works are the works of the person who has authentic faith in Christ, love from a changed heart. Now, Paul, when he was talking about works, he says, you can't be justified or declared right before God by, by anything but faith alone. And if you try and add works, when he says add works, that's now mingling in your works as the, the reason why you have a right status before God. You cannot intermingle works, whether it's the works of the law 
or any good works that you do that you somehow puff out your chest and say, God, be pleased with me because of who I am apart from your son, Jesus Christ. But in James, it's totally different. These works are the fruit, the fruit of authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Again, James 2.20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That faith, phony, orthodox belief apart from a changed heart that results in works, it just won't work. It doesn't work. Well, now we've got two positive Old Testament examples in chapter 2, verses 21 to 26. He goes on to say, was not our father Abraham justified by works? Now we're going to get into what does he mean by justified, right? What does that mean? Our father Abraham was justified by works? It means to prove or show through evidence that one is righteous. James doesn't have, he has more of a horizontal view in mind of what justified means. You see, in Paul's mind, when he's writing about justified, he's saying in the vertical sense that you're justified before God. It's all vertical. When God looks down on you, has he declared you to be right by faith alone in Christ alone because of grace alone? But when James has this in mind, he's talking about the evidence of faith. He's talking about something that looks real. It's a horizontal approach. But justified can also mean this. It can also mean vindicated or proof of righteousness. So have these words in mind. When you read justified in James 2, it's evidence, it's proof, it's vindication of righteousness. Actually being able to see I am right, and people can see it. They see the fruit of the righteousness that I have credited to me, if you're in Paul's world, but now in James' world, it's vindicated so that all can see, I really am right before God because he changed me. Now you may be thinking, Matthew, you're just making this up, right? Listen to what Paul himself says in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, speaking of this word justified, same Greek word. Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you, speaking of God, he's speaking to God, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Let me ask you this, does God need a legal declaration of righteousness? No, he is righteous. He doesn't need anybody to come along and legally declare him right like we need because we're sinners. But he uses the word justified, speaking to God. You are justified in your words. Here Paul in Romans 3, 4 is using the same word with the idea of vindication or proof of God's righteousness and judgment. He's saying, God, you are vindicated because you're judging a sinful world. And because they are so sinful, you are absolutely right in doing everything that you do. 1 Timothy 3, 16, Paul also speaking This time of Christ, he says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, or justified, same word, by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus was proven to be actually righteous by the Spirit because he was. Jesus is righteous. He doesn't need God to declare him right. He just needs to be vindicated. We all see it. You are right, Jesus. You claim to be the Son of God, and you proved it by your works, and the Spirit bore testimony to that. You are right. You are vindicated. Same word, justified. That's how James is using justified in this text. It means vindication. 
It means a proof or an evidence of righteousness. It's the fruit of righteousness. He goes on to say, James does, in verse 21, was not our father Abraham justified, vindicated, proved to be right by evidence by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? It's amazing. When Paul looks at Abraham, he goes back to Genesis 15, verse 6. It's the calling of Abraham. He called Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to come out of your land, and I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Abraham had no idea how it was going to be done, but Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. He did nothing good. He just trusted in God. But James is looking at a different situation. Genesis chapter 22, 12, 30 years later it's believed. It was 15 years from the time God gave him that promise until he had his son of promise, Isaac. And then 15 years later, it's believed, when Isaac was 15, God tells Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take the son of promise and I want you to go sacrifice him on the altar. What a test. What a test. This was the final and greatest culmination of the life of of the great, great patriarch of faith, Abraham, when he was tested by God to see if he would be vindicated, to see if there was evidence that the faith that he had in Genesis 15 was real. But the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham and said, Stop, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. See, Paul and James are looking at Abraham's life from two different perspectives. Paul is looking back when, when, when Abraham was called and he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's almost as if the seed went into the ground there. But what do we see over here in Genesis chapter 22? We see a full plant of faith that has come out and God is able to pluck the fruit and show us all vindicated evidence that the faith is real. They're looking at Abraham from two different perspectives. Paul over here is looking at Abraham being justified by faith alone. Over here, James is looking at Abraham as being vindicated. Evidence, proof that the faith was authentic, justified. Verse 22, it goes on to say faith. Faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works Works were the inevitable fruit of authentic, real, genuine faith. And faith was completed or brought to its final purpose or destination. How many of you plant tomato plants with the idea that you just like planting seeds? You don't. It has a destination. It has a purpose. It has a reason why you put it in the ground. And the evidence that it's a tomato plant is that it comes out and it produces tomatoes. It's the fruit of authentic faith. Faith was brought to its final purpose or destination for Abraham when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. James was looking back from Genesis 22, 12 to Genesis 15, 6. He's plucking the fruit and he's looking back and saying, see, I told you it was a tomato plant. He was enjoying the fruit while looking back when the seed of faith was planted. Verse 23 he quotes Genesis 15, 16, uh, 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This was Paul's emphasis, but James is looking back and saying, look, we have vindication, we have the evidence. So here we have this statement, and now we need to read it with our new terms in mind. Faith, again, faith is, 
in James' mind, faith alone is just a mere claim to faith. It's absent of works. It's dead orthodoxy. It's emotional experience alone without works. And when James defined works, he's talking about the works of a person who has authentic faith in Christ. It's love from a changed heart. And by justified, we've now seen that it's shown to be living righteously because God has already declared that person as righteousness. Righteous. It's righteousness lived out. It's vindication. It's proof and evidence that God truly has done a work in their hearts. So now we come to verse 24. You see that a person is justified or vindicated or proven to be righteous or evidence by works, which is fruit of an authentic faith like Abraham and not by faith alone, which is the phony kind of faith that even demons display. You know, when, you, when you define the terms now, you are all, all of a sudden see, ah, oh, I see what James is getting at. And again, the theme of this, this text over and over again is faith without works is dead. And 224 clearly represents that. You will not be vindicated. You have no proof or evidence in your life that you know God or that this faith is real without good works. Verse 25 gives us another example. It says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It's the same kind of faith. It's the same story. She believed God, and then she did something about it. The same way. But the question I have is, why would he choose Rahab? What a horrible, horrible example, right? What, what's James trying to tell us here, for crying out loud? Why choose Rahab? I believe that James is showing two extremes from biblical history. The father of the nation of Israel and a proselyte from the Canaanites who had a sinful, sinful, dirty history. This shows that all are saved the same way. Whether you're the father Abraham or Rahab the harlot, we are all saved by the same authentic faith that produces works. We see her confession in Joshua 2.11, for the Lord your God, listen to this, she had so little revelation, but listen to what she has to say. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Ray, that was the seed. Rahab had faith in the one true God, but she proved it by helping the Israelite spies return to their people. She had evidence of authentic faith and she was vindicated, vindicated by works. So the final verdict on the matter we get from James 2.26, it says this. The final verdict on the matter, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There's a one final analogy that he gives in this section. Just like the body cannot live apart from the inner man, so faith is dead and lifeless without works. You think you have an orthodox faith? You think you have an emotional faith, if it does not display itself in works, it's like a dead corpse in a coffin. Lifeless, it provides you no benefit, it gives you no profit. Well, is James unique in what he's saying here? Faith without works is dead. Is that, is that really anything that's New Testament dogma? Is that, is that doctrine that we could really get behind? Why don't we take a look at a few others that might have said the same thing? How about Paul, right? First, we were looking at Paul and James, right? Ding, ding, let's go. They're going to go toe-to-toe. 
cage match fight, right? Is it works or faith that justifies? Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There you go again, Paul, faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's just stop there, right? No, listen to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is beautiful that when a sinner comes to Christ and they call out to Christ and they say, it's Christ alone, God, it's your grace alone, it's by faith alone today that I receive this salvation. That's wonderful. Jesus said, God the Father says, great, we've got a right relationship and you can come into heaven, but it doesn't stop there. Sometimes I wonder, why didn't God just take me right to heaven when I got saved? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be really cool? He says, no. Verse 10, Ephesians 2.10, for by grace you've been saved. And he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Church, you were saved not just to get to heaven. You were saved to do good works. And when you do those good works, it's evidence that the faith that you have is real. It's authentic. It saves. It gives you a benefit. You know God. Maybe you've been sitting on the sideline for so long. Maybe you feel like you've been benched. But I want to tell you something. God has saved you for good works. And what's beautiful, it says that he's put them all in front of your path beforehand. And all you've got to do is just trust him and obey him, and he'll point your foot in the right steps. You were created for good works. So now all of a sudden, instead of James and Paul opposing each other, they're linking up arms. They're on the same side. Oh, is it just James and Paul? Listen to what Peter, the great apostle Peter, had to say. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we've got James, we've got Paul, we've got Peter, and they're linking arms and they're saying, faith without works is dead. Who else? We got anybody else? The Apostle John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 7 through 10 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Stop listening to the lie. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Hear James, even the demons believe and shudder. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, faith without works is dead. We've got James We've got Paul, we've got Peter, we've got John. 
We have Jesus himself. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says, remember James, someone will say, confession alone. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah, Peter, James, Paul, John, Christ himself. And because we believe in who wrote this book, the Bible, we have God the Father on his throne that delivered through Jesus Christ, passed down and delivered through the Holy Spirit the pages of this book, and they all agree, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. James does not contradict the doctrine of justification by faith alone before God, but what he says is faith without works is dead. This is not a battle of James versus Paul. This is James, Paul, Peter, John, Jesus, and the testimony of the triune God through the Holy Spirit who breathed out the Holy Scripture standing against us all proclaiming faith without works is dead. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you have the real kind of faith that works? Do you have it? Do you have a faith on the contrary, that it's merely orthodox. It's just doctrinally correct. You know, you could go through, you know, our church's doctrinal statement and, you know, you can cross this out and say, well, they could have worded this better. I mean, you've got it all down. You've got the systematic theology. You've, you've got it all laid out. It's orthodox. It's fake. It's phony if it ends there. That's good. It's good to be doctrinally correct, but if it ends there, it's dead. Or is your so-called faith it's not authentic. It's just a so-called faith, one of emotion and experience only. You go back to that come to Jesus moment, that conversion experience. You remember, it's almost like the, the lights came on and heaven came down. And that's wonderful, beautiful conversions. Conversions can be very dramatic, but if it stops there, if it's only that, your faith is dead. If your faith is merely orthodox, and if your faith is merely emotional, congratulations. You belong to the club of demons. What's the answer today? Well, this is a sharp warning to us all that we cannot say only. Again, just say it with words that we have a faith that saves us from the judgment of God if it is faith that is not characterized by a transformed life that proves itself in good works. Examine yourself today. Do I have the real kind? Do I have the real deal? So what's the answer? Is the answer, okay, Matt, I'm going to go right out here and I'm going to go right to the enlistment office. I'm going to put my name down for everything. I'm going to start doing some crazy good works. Is that the answer? Again, it's not time to just add works to your so-called faith. That's it's not the answer. God is saying, James is saying, Paul is saying, you never had real faith to begin with. It's time to repent, destroy the facade Stop playing the game. Take down the mask. Repent and receive Christ with real, authentic, genuine faith that can be vindicated and evidenced through good works. This is the kind of faith that trusts in Jesus alone and confesses him as Lord and master of your life. 
Maybe you have a time where you think, I know I remember I believed and I said, prayed the sinner's prayer, but there's never been a real authentic confession to say, Jesus, you are now my Lord. If it's not that kind of faith, it's fake. Well, I'm thankful that James didn't just stop here. He provides us with the only appropriate response for those who have dead faith. Maybe that's you sitting here today. Look at James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, and then we'll close. It says, you adulterous people. Goodness. I'm going to beat around the bush there, James. James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Friends, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Friend, if you are here today and you have a dead faith, humble yourself. Submit yourself to God and ask him, say, Lord, I want to have a real kind of faith. I'm done playing the games. I tear down this facade. I'm as good as a demon. I want the real kind of faith. Draw close to God. Humble yourselves, and he will exalt you when you have real, saving, authentic faith that works. Because faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this sober warning. Uh, I don't want to live a lie, Father. And it, it terrifies me to think that I think when, when all things are good and I realize that they're all crumbling around me. So we thank you for this warning today. I pray for every single one of us that we would examine ourselves and ask us, do we have the kind of faith that truly saves? The kind of faith that doesn't just claim orthodox religion or claim to have an emotional experience, but a faith that works, a faith that genuinely saves. I pray that every single one of us here that know you, I pray that in the days and weeks to come, our good works would shine out, that we would be vindicated among, for ourselves and amongst one another, that we are people that are following after you, Father. We trust in you alone, but I pray that this trust would be a trust that would evidence itself in good works. Bring us to repentance, Father. Bring us to transformation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit and for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.